Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Shiloh, we're doing sections 10 and 11 of the Doctrine and Covenants today. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you. So these sections are two slightly different themes. Uh, we've got one section. Section 10 seems to be a little bit out of chronological order here. You know, we had 6 through 9, which was a discussion of Oliver Cowdery in the translation process. And then we get to section 10, and it's like jumping back in time and going back to rehash the whole Martin Harris thing. So it's kind of interesting how it's placed here. But we get a lot more context and a revelation that specifically addresses what they're supposed to do about this. Really, this whole section gives us a great contrast between character of Satan and character of the Lord. And he kind of spells out sort of modus operandi for Satan and then his modus operandi and how they differ. A very fascinating way of putting it, overlaying it in the context of what just happened here. Um, we get some clues into some Book of Mormon things that I had, for some reason, never put together before. I'd be curious to see if there's any a scholarly uh, treatment of of this in the section. And then, um, yeah, then Christ comes in and and speaks and unfolds to us more about his character. And really beautiful, really powerful here in section 10. Section 11 is a revelation given uh, specifically for Hiram. The first nine verses and some of verse 10 are, I believe, if not word for word, very, very close to section six. So there's a lot of parallels in the theme here. And then it goes into discussing specifically Hiram's gift and calling. Some great things there about how we study the gospel, how we um, are to take it to others, you know, this is a very patient God, not in a hurry, not rushing you, saying, let's make sure everything's done in order. Let's make sure it's done done right. It's kind of a, a different approach to the work than we've we've seen before. There there does seem to be a little bit of a little bit of a, a rush on Joseph. You know, let's let's get the translating done. We need to get this done. We need to get this published. It's important that we get this done. And then we kind of switch to Hiram and it's like, you know, just just chill. Just <laughs> read the scriptures, and and uh, when you feel good, then you can start telling people what you feel. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, right. it's a little bit different uh, of an approach with Hiram, and and I'm not sure. Um, you know, I I don't know a ton about Hiram. I wonder if there's been any. Um, I don't know that there's enough uh, material to write a biography on him, but I wonder how this fits in with his actual character. And anybody that maybe is, has studied Joseph Smith enough might be able to comment on the character of Hiram and how this kind of fits in with him. But, but, but it is interesting there. Hiram is this, this sort of shadow figure of Joseph, notwithstanding him being his older brother. He is this person that we've, we've sort of revered very close to Joseph, if for nothing else, the very fact that he died at the same time. 
and was there with him. And so I think that was a big part of of that, you know, stuck with Joseph to the end through everything. And so Hiram's this character that I think as a church we we don't know a whole lot about and I would be interested to know more about. Yeah, Hiram really is an interesting character, especially when you get into the history of the patriarchs of the church and that's absolutely fascinating. That's that, that's a whole other bag of worms that we should uh, we should open at a different time. But <laughs> <laughs> for you know, section ten, I, as I was reading this, I've kind of labeled this the Satan section. I I, I don't know if I can do. Can I do that? <laughs> I think I can do There's that. There's ones later that are a little more Satan sections, but you can do that here. If okay, you I can do that. You know, I went through and you know, it, Satan is specifically labeled at least 10 times. I counted 10 times at least. And then I think there's another, I don't know, six or seven times like the pronoun he in reference to Satan is used. But Satan is a major dominant theme in this section. And that is really fascinating, especially since the beginning is about Satan and the last half is Jesus Christ talking about himself. So this section, we really get this dichotomy and this juxtaposition and the polarity between Jesus and Satan. And Jesus is here talking about what Satan is like and how Satan is influencing things and, and how Satan is using his influence upon man and, and what man is going to do. And we use the story of the lost 116 pages to kind of carry this narrative. And, you know, whenever I've heard this story before, it is always in context of the 116 pages. And we just rely on the story of the 116 pages to kind of carry us through that. But as I was reading it this time, I was I was almost blown away a little bit because we rec- have to start recognizing that Satan is is a type of he's an archetype himself right they just like christ is an archetype satan is an archetype and what that means is that he's a reflection of a part of our nature mm-hmm. whereas christ is the emanation of one part of our nature that leads to our true self satan is the archetype of our false self so when we see satan here we can we can obviously read it in one way where lucifer was then called satan just like jehovah was called christ right but in this way we have to start recognizing that satan is a very real part of our own character and so when we read satan here we can almost read it metaphorically and that's what i mean as an archetype uh-huh. so as we're going through and we are reading what satan is doing the story itself we can we can lose track of this real fast because we can just you say you know satan in this particular story was doing this thing with these men and he was influencing men to do these things or we can kind of take a step back and realizing and try to analyze what Satan does. Can we get into a little bit of the archetype of Satan and start to realize parts of our own life where we are giving heed to and that even the narrative and the archetype of Satan underpins our national stories, our, our stories of civilization and and of the way that things operate in our life? And come to find out that there, there's some pretty there's some pretty harrowing things that we can pull out from this discussion that when we we look at Satan and what he's doing, we have to really start questioning some things about ourselves and about some of the narratives that we subconsciously play and that we live into that really do fit the Satan archetype. And that's why the the story of repentance and this message of repentance, and it's even going to come into our discussion right now because repentance is the very means by which we come out from the false self. We come out from the, the Satan archetype that we have been in, that, that informs our very life. Because from the time that we're, we're children and we grow up in, in society and in civilization, we are informed not in God's way, but in this more of a kind of like a Satan archetypal way. I, I, I don't want to get so dichotomous and dual as to just say, you know, just, just Christ and Satan, but because I, there's this huge middle of just life in, in the inside. But 
is to really start to kind of maybe pull some of our own life out in these pages. So as we get going here, it's, it's interesting because, yeah, we are talking, the Lord's talking to Joseph Smith, and he's talking to Joseph Smith about Martin Harris. And so here in the first few verses in verse two, he says, and also you lost your gift at the same time and your mind became darkened. You know, this for me is basically that Joseph was beginning to recognize his true self and his mind becoming darkened was Joseph's own falling into his false self and doing that. It, 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 that false self really is dark. We're going to have Jesus Christ later on in this section reveal himself as the light that shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not, mm-hmm. that his mind have become darkened. It doesn't mean that God was gone. It didn't mean that Jesus Christ had abandoned him. It means that he, he starts to judge himself. Now, it's fascinating. In Hebrew, Satan means the accuser. And that in and of itself, we've talked about that quite a bit in previous in previous podcasts. But one of the things that we've really got to grasp a hold of is that voice that accuses, that belittles or that points the finger at our sin and says that this is the reason why you are condemned and punished. And that's why you're destroyed. That's not God. That's the Satan archetype. Satan is the one that accuses. And so as we're going to find out these men and women, I'm I'm guessing too, but it's the men that are identified who are coming against Joseph Smith, who have stolen the pages, they are going to create a scheme whereby they can accuse Joseph Smith of plagiarizing or plagiarizing or of making things up anyway. Right. Yeah. And so in doing that, it's the acute it's the accusation. It's the accusing that becomes the major theme of that archetype here. And so Joseph's mind has become darkened. He's accusing himself, which means that he's, he's participating in this, this natural man, false self accusation voice. And God is always there saying, Hey, listen, if you repent and see me differently, I'm going to pull you out of that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you out of that. You've, you were not, you did not rely on me. You relied upon your own devices, your own fear, your own, the own persuasions of men. You didn't rely on me. I'm always here. And yet, because of how much he adhered to his own false self, when he saw the consequences of that, that sent him spiraling. It wasn't God who sent him there. It wasn't God's punishment. It wasn't that God was like abandoning him. Yeah, he lost his he tap to that perennial river of truth and of, and of the gifts of the spirit and his gift of translation because his own accusing voice of everything that he had done. We talked about that a little bit back in section three. So I think this is a a fascinating section to be able to start kind of pulling out that theme of accusation about what we do to ourselves in that and how that affects things and of how God is always trying to manifest himself outside of that that voice of accusation. Well, I think it fits really well with uh, how this lays out here. Starting with verse five, pray always that you may come off conquer, yea, that you may conquer Satan and that you may escape the hands of the servants of Satan that do uphold his work. This is basically identifying prayer as the method or a a primary method by which we overcome the false self. I know in the contemplation podcast about prayer and stuff, you guys went into a lot of this, but I like what the Bible dictionary says about prayer. You know, it's the means by which the will of the child is brought into alignment with the will of the father. And so what we're doing in this process of prayer, it also calls it a form of work, which I think is interesting. What we're doing in this process of prayer, we're struggling in mighty prayer. We are are divulging ourselves of this false self and we're turning to God. We are putting our will in line with his. And so I, I see that here 
and it fits well with what's going on because he then starts discussing what happened with Martin Harris. And this is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, I think we would call it a condemnation, but in the context of what's going on here, and especially the way that we're discussing the Satan archetype, um, it's not a condemnation, it's identifications. He says, behold, they have sought to destroy you. This is moving on to verse 6. Yea, even the man in whom you have trusted has sought to destroy you. And for this cause, I said that he is a wicked man, for he has sought to take away the things wherewith you have been entrusted, and he has also sought to destroy your gift. So he's acting within that false self. His, his works have, have been such. But uh, I don't see this necessarily as a condemnation of Martin Harris. You know, later we find out Martin Harris comes back. He's called to be a, a, one of the three witnesses. You know, all of this works out for him in terms of um, him actually being able to participate in the work. As one of the three witnesses, he's called to help call the 12 apostles and so forth. So the Lord referring to him as a wicked man is kind of an interesting anecdote, which has been, you know, immortalized within scripture. You know, Martin Harris, <laughs> he leaves the church, he comes back and he's like, you know, he's named in scripture as a wicked man. Who gets, who gets that, you know, <laughs> who gets that treatment? But um, I think in terms of who he was in that moment, right, what his priorities were, he was, again, fearing man more than God. He was acting within that Satan archetype, that false self, because of where he was putting his trust and his priorities. And so he could be identified as wicked, not condemned as wicked, but identified as it in that moment. Yeah, I love that you went back to DNC3 there. It's because the definition of wickedness, I think that it's being used here. Back when we go back to DNC3, 6 through 9, you know, the Lord talks about the persuasions of men. But, you know, in DNC 121, we have that the no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by the priesthood except by persuasion, right? And long suffering, gentleness, meekness, love. But the, the, the persuasions of men are not persuasions, it's manipulation. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how the false self views persuasion is through manipulation. And there's a world of difference between manipulation and persuasion. And so when Joseph and Martin Harris were talking about the 116 pages, this was a matter of manipulation, that these men were manipulating Martin Harris. Martin Harris was manipulating Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith had started to manipulate God. And when we come in here to try to manipulate God, you know, then we have here in in section 10 later on, we have the Lord at, uh, I think at least two times where he says that these wicked men are going to try to get you to tempt me to let you rewrite these pages. And we see that at least in, in section in verse 29 here in that chapter in section 10. And so it's this cascading event of manipulation and to hearken to that manipulation, to give heed to that, to have fear because of that. That's just one layer. Now you're fearing men more than you are being brought into the loving compassion and grace of God. Because now that the false self is starting to place qualities and importance on the world's validation of what's of what's right and wrong and, and important versus what grace can bring and what love can bring and what compassion can bring and, and the true virtues of God that are expressed through the priesthood, like what are mentioned in what, section 121. And so you have men that are being set up as the authority, and then now you are setting it not the counsels of God. And so that's again mentioned in, in section 3. And now you start trusting in the arm of flesh more than you start relying upon the power of God. 
Now, we already know, and we've talked about this a lot, like going all the way back to Alma 9, what is the glory of God but grace and equity and truth, right? God always answering the prayers of his people. And we'd never give God credit that this is his power, that there's power in these means because the natural man sets these things to naught. We never truly have ever explored the power of love and compassion and mercy and grace as a community. It has never happened. In scripture, I've seen it, I've seen it three times. You see it in Enoch Zion. You see it in the people just after Jesus comes to the Americas. And then you see it once in kind of a microcosm, a little bit with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and again in uh, kind of like in, in Helaman 6 or Helaman 5, I think at the end. Hmm. And you see these people who just begin to have these little micro communities uh, where they're starting to tap into these perennial waters, these perennial truths, these, this underground river of the divine conversation with men. And they're kind of tapping into this as they're, as they're coming into it. And it's kind of manifesting itself sporadically, but it has been so rare. We have no context to this. We have no way of even being able to have something that we have reference to this because it's never existed. And so it's hard for us. It's hard for us, you know, as Latter-day Saints or as Christians or as anyone else, because where's the example for this? And then when we go to Christ in the New Testament and we read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, like that can't be it, can it? Because that seems like such ideological hogwash that if he, he can't possibly be literal in what he's talking about there, right? Because that would literally solve no problems whatsoever. At least that's how the, the natural man begins to process it. And so we begin to realize, and I love, you know, we've brought this up about the Sermon on the Mount before and about loving your enemies, about the, uh, the, the book on the, the 100 most influential people that was, that was written. And I forget the author, you know, I should have looked it up, but this author back in the early eighties ends up writing this book, the hundred most influential people. And he puts Jesus Christ as number three. Now, this book was of some report because it was the very first book ever written kind of academically that had done this kind of hierarchy of historically significant people. And he had placed Muhammad and Sir Isaac Newton ahead of Jesus Christ. Now, whether or not it was good or right or wrong that he did that, his point was when he said why he ordered it this way is he said that Jesus's one unique teaching was to love your enemies and to do good to them, to hate you and to pray for them, which despitefully use you and persecute you. But he says that we don't practice that. We really don't believe in it. We don't expect others to believe in it. And we don't even teach our children to believe this. And so he claims, he says, the reason I put Jesus number three is because the, the Muslims adhere to into Muhammad more than Christians adhere to Jesus's one unique teachings. Scientists will adhere to Newton more than Christians will adhere to one, Jesus's one unique teaching. And so Jesus has remained a basically great idea, but it's been completely untried. So it goes back to that old saying that Christianity has not been found practiced and found insufficient. It has been found too difficult and completely abandoned altogether. Mm. Then when we come into these moments of seeing Satan come into the, this mix, we see that Joseph is now coming into the same experience of hearkening to the voices of men rather than the voices of God. He's putting the barrier between the false self and the real self within himself. And now because he's doing that, he's distancing himself from being able to connect with God because the false self is never going to be the one that connects with God. It's always going to be the true self breaking through the cracks of the false self. And we begin to see that through these, uh, through these verses. You know, the, the story goes here and that the idea of these people that had 
stolen the pages was that they were going to alter them. And then if Joseph Smith were to to retranslate, that they would publish and show how things had differed. Now, I don't I don't know exactly how they were planning on altering them. Is this something where they could like get out their magic eraser, you know, and like change words? I don't know. <laughs> they could creatively like uh, change certain words. I, I'm not sure exactly how they were planning on doing this, but um, in any case, their their purpose behind this was actually, um, from their perspective, perfectly rational and reasonable, and they thought again, from their perspective, that they were doing the right thing. Well, why? Why did they think they were doing the right thing? Because their assumption they were acting on was that Joseph Smith was a liar, that he was a cheat, and he was deceiving people. And so because he was deceiving people, that justified them in taking this and then altering it so that they could he could they could deceive people about believing Joseph's words. So, man, the implications of this because of the way that the Lord treats this this reasoning, right? This line of reasoning are pretty far-reaching. And I think that if we look at our own lives, we might see some of how this this Satan's uh, modus operandi, like I said, has seeped into our our daily rationalizations and justifications of ourselves and our actions. Verse 25, he saith unto them, deceive and lie in wait to catch that you may destroy. Behold, this is the, this is no harm. And thus he foddereth them and telleth them that there is no sin to lie, that they may catch a man in a lie, that they may destroy him. Verse 28, woe be unto him that lieth to deceive because he supposeth that another lieth to deceive. For such are not exempt from the justice of God. This uh, speaks to a little bit what comes up sometimes in the political realm of discussion of whataboutism, right? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's okay that I did this because the people that I oppose did something slightly worse or at least as bad, right? It's this whole seeking to justify our own sins by accusing others. This is exactly how Satan not only gets us to uh, first accuse ourselves to get get ourselves down, this is who you are, but then start accusing others, right? So Satan attack, has us attack ourselves and then has us attack others. And it's that counterfeit of the way that the Lord uses faith, hope, and charity in order to get us to examine ourselves to love and then turn and to love others. And it's just fascinating how it plays out here in this narrative and it is contrasted with the Lord's pattern. Yeah, I love how you talked about the accuser and rationality because the accusing voice that we feel for ourselves and that we feel for others is always rational. At least it's rational to us, right? Because we're not irrational beings. There's always a reason why we otherize. There is always a reason why we accuse. There is always a reason to finger point. No one finger points in a vacuum. No one ever like becomes disheartened or disenchanted or angry at another person because of something they did when there's no reason to be that way. 
we're not that kind of a rational person. So the accuser will always be rational to us. And I think what you said about prayer, Ben, was really powerful about how prayer is the will of the child being turned to the will of the father. And in this context, the will of the father, or the will of God, is like a cosmic reality. The will of God is reality. So what this is, is this is the prayer of us coming out of our false self, out of our distortions of the way things really are, and allowing ourselves to let God instruct us in how things really are versus how we perceive them to be. This is, you know, a very stoic way of looking at life where we come to terms of reality versus our ideas of reality. The fact is, is we don't live in reality. We don't perceive reality because reality, there's no argument or contention in reality. There's argument and contention in our stories about reality all the time. And, you know, one example of this, I talked about this years ago, and this isn't a a subject that's as hot a topic anymore, so maybe I can bring this up without it causing too much issue. But when we had all those NFL players that were kneeling on a field, Mm -hmm. and you had all the people standing in the stands, and they were playing the national anthem and the whole flag and that whole thing. When we look at reality, no one is in contention about what was going on there. When, when we say in reality, there happens to be a man, he's kneeling on a field, just that fact alone, there's no argument. Right. When we say, hey, there's these people standing in the stands, they're, they're standing here, this is what they're doing, no one argues about that, there's no contention, there's no anger. If I were to say, hey, there's a piece of cloth up here with certain, with certain writing on it and stripes and colors and, and these little, little things we, we represent stars and whatever these little white things are, no one argues about that because that's just what's there. And if I say, hey, there's these sound vibrations that are just going through the stadium that follow certain sequences of volume or of, uh, you know, the frequencies of these of these uh, pitches, nobody's going to argue with that either. But the minute you ascribe a story to what that flag means or what that cloth means, or you ascribe meaning to what it means that this person was kneeling or this person was standing. See, nobody argues about reality. Everybody argues about their stories about reality Mm -hmm. and the meanings that they have ascribed to something. Mm -hmm. And so when you said that, you know, this prayer brings us to a child into the will of the father, it's the very act of repentance of letting go of our stories about reality and letting God reveal what reality really is. That's a really powerful concept when we can all of a sudden realize that all of those moments when we feel And we have lost our peace because we feel anger or resentment or anxiety or the other side is going to destroy our country. And that's a big one right now. We know that we're not living in reality. We're living in our stories about reality. Because when we live in reality, when we live true to our true self in the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, danger is a real thing. But the fear, the panic, the anxiety, the lack of peace... That does not come from God. If we have any of that in our lives, brought about by the stories that we make of reality, there's something that we need to change. And yeah, that's just, I love that, that that accuser, the accuser, going back to the accuser, the accuser is always rational. The accuser always has a story. The accuser always has a meaning. And yet repentance is the very means by which we come out of that. And you also brought up, Ben, about these men that were accusing Joseph Smith. They had a reason for it. They weren't just arguing this thing out of a vacuum. They felt like they were protecting the public from this charlatan. Oh, yeah. And, and we as society, we do this all the time still. Whenever we have police officers go in and, and if they lie to the perps and to the perpetrators that they think are guilty, we have no problem with that. They're just catching the bad guy, right? 
And whenever we have a lawyer that goes in and bends the truth in court to be able to accuse or to defend someone that we think is innocent or guilty, we have no problem with that either. We really have no problem with these things so long as our side is getting the benefit of it. Yeah, the ends justify the means. Yeah, the ends. Oh, man. In fact, I even wrote that in my margins here to talk about the Satan archetype will always argue that the ends justify the means. Yeah, and it's a type of manipulation. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally, because all of a sudden it becomes an outcome-based ethic as opposed to... Because in Jesus's doctrine, he's like, yeah, the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is a descriptive element, but there's this whole way of being and this whole ethic that you can do whatever you need to do as long as you get the outcome that you're looking for is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to give up that way of thinking to let God reveal what everything really is. That's the way it works. And whatever it really is, we have no context to because we haven't seen it. We're only enveloped in the false self. We don't have any context to the true self yet. That's why we're repenting. If we're repenting, we already know kind of a priori that we don't even have a true view of what it is yet. So this really gets into section 11 of what God tells Hiram. He's like, listen, you're going out and you're trying to preach the word already. You haven't even learned the word yet. You haven't even let this sink into you yet. You need to give this some more time to percolate. So yeah, yeah we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves there, but that's uh, yeah, it's a great concept. Yeah, I was thinking about what you were talking about earlier, the, the difference between persuasion and manipulation. And this section brings it out. The persuasion is done by light and by faith, and that manipulation is through darkness and fear. This in verse 21, and their hearts are corrupt and full of wickedness and abominations, and they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Therefore, they will not ask of me. You know, this always reminds me of this exchange that Nephi has with his brothers. There's so much to this. So uh, Lehi has a vision, okay? And this vision is revelation, right? It's revelation for his family. This is scripture. And he tells it to his family. He gives his family this scripture. And Nephi takes this and he says, this is interesting, I don't really know what to do about this. I don't know what it means. What does he do? He goes to the Lord and says, what does this mean? I want to understand what this is. Then Nephi gets his own experience and he goes through this whole thing. And he's like, I don't, I don't have a problem with what my father said, but I don't understand it. And I want to understand it on, you know, I want to have an experience with it. Right? I don't want it to just be the words on the page or just what my father says. I want to have an experience with it. And so he goes and gets that experience. And then he comes back from it. And the first thing he sees are his brothers arguing about what his father said. There's contention about the scripture, right? About the revelation. And Nephi says, what, what are you arguing about? And they said, we don't understand. He said, did you ask the Lord? They said, no, the Lord won't tell us anything like that. So we haven't even asked him. You know, it's it's a fascinating story that really brings out sort of the whole uh, restored gospel attitude towards scripture and revelation and kind of speaks to Joseph Smith's experience in hearing all the people argue over scripture. And him just saying, I don't know, I'm going to go get my own experience. And he goes and gets his own experience. And all of a sudden, all the arguing doesn't matter anymore at all, right? Nephi comes from back from his experience and Laman and Lamia are arguing over the scripture. And 
back to the point, the point of scripture is to point us in the direction of us having our own experience. It's not to get us to argue with others about what scripture says. <laughs> and this is so interesting here. These people that were trying to, to stop Joseph from doing the translation, they were, they were very opposed to how he was going about this. And again, you know, they had all their all their reasons for it. But this last phrase, therefore they will not ask of me, because they prefer the darkness. They like the contention. They like to be able to say, you're wrong and I'm right because there's these words on this page that say this. And they're not willing to give that up and say, I'm going to go find out what's really true through an experience that I'm going to have, rather than just beating you over the head with the words that are on this page. Again, there's so much more that that to me is such a central theme of the restored gospel that I think that it, it bears, you know, coming back to very often. It shows up in the Book of Mormon. It shows up here in the Doctrine and Covenants that the importance of Scripture, again, is to point us in the direction of getting our own experience, not to give us ammunition by which we can contend and argue with others. That's what uh, the Lord gets into here later in the section, talking about how the purpose of his gospel was that there would be less contention, right? But Satan uses can go ahead and use the Scriptures to create contention anyway if he wants. Again, I might be jumping ahead a little bit um, because there's some some points here in, in section 10 that I, that I wanted to go over, but uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Shiloh? Well, I loved so many of the things that you just touched on. You know, I found in my life that there is a world of difference between feeling the need and the desire to defend the correct ideas of God, you know, to or against or for anyone having doubts, you know, people or someone who disagrees with a different idea of God than I do. Versus having someone who has had moments or glimpses of experiencing God's mercy and his compassion and his love and in knowing how to help lead others to having those same experiences and allowing God to reveal his own truth. You know, when we seek to like defend our own correct ideas of God, we inherently descend into dualism and otherization. There's no escaping this. The primary victory of this method is just to convert the intellect to one way of thought and belief. So as long as we like, we ask all the right questions and we put God in all the right boxes, then that's just the way it goes. So if we interpret all the scriptures in the right way, right? Hmm. But I've also completely noticed that something else goes on entirely when there's these few and rare people who have found and have truly tasted of the healing, pure love and grace of God. And in turn, they're able to help lead others into that same experience. And if I'm completely honest with myself... I have to admit that I spent the majority of my life in the first camp of being able to talk circles about what God is and about what God does and about what God's attributes are. But only later in my life have I come into those moments of actually experiencing God, of being caught in glimpses of the wonder and awe of who this being is I say I worship. And it's in the experience, just like you said about Nephi. It's in that experience where the real power is. It's just like we talked about in the podcast about the first vision. Joseph was what the, the events that drove the first vision. He had seen people rest the scriptures, people who were excited with love and tenacity and goodwill for their newfound faith, but who immediately turned around and started to revile everyone around him who didn't agree with their particular interpretation of it. 
And man, I've, I've still got to be careful of this because it is so pernicious to the natural man. I mean, this is, this is like the natural way to go about doing things. To do things God's way seems completely backwards to everything else that we've got going on until we're able to be in it long enough. But to really have those experiences, and I, and I love that you talked about that, that coming into those experiences, that's where the peace comes from. And you can see it again that these men see the charlatan in Joseph Smith. He's the one out there talking about all these lies. Because, you know, even Joseph Smith said, hey, listen, if I hadn't have been through these experiences myself, I wouldn't have believed any of this. So we have to, you know, when I think about these evil men, I have to go back to Cain again, because we, we see that we like to villainize all of these wicked people here for their wickedness. And that God comes down and he seems like he's decrying them and, and villainizing them and, and, and saying how bad they are. And I liked how you brought up about Martin Harris, about the Lord calling him a wicked man. But that's, that's not how we are really supposed to sit with that moment because of everything that Martin Harris later did and, and the relationship of how God called Martin and how Martin came into that loving conversation with God again. Because when we look at these wicked men doing wicked things, they are as much victims of the false self as what they are then projecting onto Joseph. And we have to look at them and realize that God loves and is cares for these people as much as he does for Joseph. And so while we're kind of getting Joseph's narrative here, we also recognize that God recognizes that these people who are acting in wickedness don't have a desire to come into this relation with him at least yet. Maybe they won't in this life. But in this, God, we have to recognize that God's love, grace, compassion, mercy are as much for these people who are victims of sin, just like it was that Cain was a victim of sin. And we have to start having mercy for everyone. Because once we, until we come to that place where we start seeing that the world is all a victim of sin, including us, we will then perpetually stand as the accuser in the viewpoint that we take in how we view the world. Yeah, I, I would say another reason we need to look upon these people in mercy is because they are us, right? I mean, that's the point of this is that what these people are doing and how they're acting is a representation of us as well. If we want ourselves to be treated with mercy when we act like this, we have to recognize that that we have to extend that to others as well. You know, since we're kind of on the 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 point of of the contention, or I guess I, I brought it up, <laughs> I'll, I'll skip to those scriptures, and then we'll come back to some of the things in, in section ten that I wanted to look at. But really, just uh, powerful here. I don't I don't know where to start because uh, I start saying, "Oh, I'll start here." And, no, I want to go to the verse before. No, I want to go to the verse before. But in these last verses, uh, upper fifties, sixties, he starts talking about uh, the other sheep which are not of this fold. You know, he hasn't got, they haven't gotten to the point in the Book of Mormon where they're translating about where Christ talks to them. And so this is sort of a foreshadowing of what they're going to come across there. But I love how it fits in the context here of how Christ defines his church. He talks about these other sheep and it's almost like he's telling us or the members of the church that are going to be organized, hey, I have other sheep. You know, you, you guys look at yourself as the chosen, but I have other sheep, right? There's other people that I am bringing into the truth, and they may not be doing it in the exact same way you are, but they're still going to be part of the same fold. And so here in verse 67, he defines what he means by his church. And if we want to take this definition back to section one, 
I think that would be very interesting because section one is chronologically given after this verse, not before. So verse 67, Behold, this is my doctrine. Whosoever repenteth and cometh unto me, the same is my church. Whosoever declareth more or less than this, the same is not of me, but is against me. Therefore, he is not of my church. That is so simple and clear that those who follow Christ are his church. They repent, come to him, that's my church. On this point of contention, verse 63, And this I do that I may establish my gospel, that there may not be so much contention. Yea, Satan doth stir up the hearts of the people to contention concerning the points of my doctrine, and in these things they do err. Not in their interpretation of doctrine, necessarily. That's not the point. The point is that they're contending. That's where they err. For they do rest the scriptures and do not understand them. Why can't they understand the scriptures? Because they're contending about them. Not because their ideas are objectively wrong, but because their very attitude towards the scriptures precludes them from understanding them. They look at the scriptures as a way to prove another person wrong, rather as a way to save another person and themselves. And uh, I, I recognize not everybody views the scriptures this way, but we can all fall into that. Looking at the scriptures as a way to prove another person wrong or to prove ourselves right, rather than as a way to bring salvation to all of God's children. And whenever we act in that, we this section tells us pretty clearly that we're not acting under the influence of the Spirit of God, that we're acting under the influence of the Spirit of Satan. And then I love, he goes into the imagery of gathering the chickens as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. Um, yea, if they will come, they may and partake of the waters of life freely. Yeah. Man, there's so much good stuff there, Ben. As you were talking, I started to think about what we had talked about with the previous podcast when Moroni reveals himself to Joseph and he goes through all those scriptures and he quotes Malachi hmm. and, and how Moroni's quotation of Malachi was not exactly what's in the KJV, but he, he introduces the word priesthood. He talks about turning the hearts of the children of the fathers and the fathers of the children, lest the earth become wasted at his, at his coming. And we talked a little bit then about how, obviously, we as a church, we interpret this to, to talk about the priesthood sealing power and to be able to, in the driving force of our genealogy work, right? To be sealed together as families and to link up the, the generational lines. And while I, f I, I fully believe that there's no reason for me not to, I think a lot of the times we completely miss the point of that, though, because what good is the sealing power if we're not actually proactively healing the generations of man right. and healing the family of God? Right. And so we, t we talked a lot about how Malachi is more fully fulfilled by healing the family of God and how to do that than simply about taking a name to the temple and going through the temple and getting that work done and just being out. Well, other, yeah, that's just dead works, right? If it if it's not accompanied by an actual change of heart and the actual spirit, it's just dead works, right? And I think far too often when you know, because we have such a baptism oriented church where we baptize and bring people into the church, and we have to almost sell the the restored gospel narrative and bring people into baptism and. Uh, that's a really negative way for me to say that. And I don't mean it to come out as negative as that probably possibly sounded. But the point is, is that I love how it's worded here and what you brought out. 
Behold, this is my doctrine, that whoso repenteth and cometh unto me, the same is my church. That's the true heart of it right there. That right there is it. Now, when we talk about baptism into the church, that is overlaid on top of this. That baptism is nothing unless this is the the key to it. Right. Unless exactly what you said, it's a dead work. Even if it's done by priesthood authority, this is my doctrine. Whatsoever, whosoever repenteth and cometh unto me, the same is my church. That's the key to it. You can get baptized by priesthood authority all day long and have your names on a, on a file up at Salt Lake all your life. But until we repent and come into Christ, that's the point of it. And whoso declareth more or less in this is not of me, but is against me. Therefore, he's not of my church. It's because Jesus Christ is coming down as the archetype of our humanity, showing us what it truly means to be human. And Satan comes along, and he wants to now start to argue all these little points, all these different points of the gospel, and to be able to put God in a box of his own design, as it were, right? This is the way that we almost always treat church. This is, I mean, this is the way apologetics is becoming nowadays. Mm -hmm. This is why I had to eventually just completely, almost completely get out of apologetics, because it's all about interpreting the scripture in the correct way in order to get a correct idea of God, that there's no actually coming to experiencing God at all. And I realized that after studying apologetics and of and wrapping my mind around all the arguments about this God and that God and about defending God in this way and arguing creatio ex nihilo versus creatio, you know, or creatio ex materia versus creatio ex nihilo and what that means from the King Follett discourse to our version of God and why that makes more sense from an Aristotelian point of view than maybe it does from a Platonic point of view. You know, whatever. It's so cool. <laughs> That's a fun discussion. I still have those discussions. I still enjoy them because they are fun. I, I enjoy talking about proverbial salt, as it were, where it is, where to find it, how to get it, what's use and its purposes for man's existence. If we didn't have salt, we'd die. But eventually I had to come to a place in my life where I realized I had not tasted the salt of the gospel. I had never tasted salt. I could talk about it. I could talk about its qualities. I could talk about where to find it. I could talk about everything. Now, of course, I'm using salt as a stand-in for God. I think it works well. But but I'd never experienced God. Now, we know all of us have had that conversation about not being able to taste salt or not being able to describe what salt tastes like. Well, it tastes salty, right? But if you were to take someone who had never tasted salt, who had no, no taste buds, just giving them words will never give them the experience of what it's like to experience the taste of salt. And in the same way, all of our talking about God will never once, even a little bit, give anyone access to actually experiencing God, of tasting the salt of the gospel. And so when we look at this, this is the Jesus, the Christ archetype coming out and getting us into this experience with him and helping us realize that, hey, listen, all this other stuff that Satan has been trying to do to stir up the hearts of the people, that's what's always been going on. And so here in verse 56, I I think you may have already read it, but behold, they do... They who do not fear me, neither keep my commandments, but build up churches unto themselves to get gain. Yea, all those that do wickedly and build up the kingdom of the devil, yea, verily, verily, I say unto you that it is they that I will disturb and cause to tremble and shake to the center. Mm-hmm. That's that whole false self. That That's the reason why people have built up that false self for self-preservation. The gospel of Jesus Christ takes you out into a wilderness that you have no context to. You can't go out into this wilderness and expect to have a vocation that's going to sustain you. God will sustain you. That doesn't mean that you got to go quit your job and you got to go get, you know, sell your house and, and go live as a pauper or some aesthetic somewhere. 
But what it does mean is that Jesus Christ's path gives us the peace and assurance that nothing in this life can cause fear, panic, or anxiety over us. And that when we step into that relationship, we can cast that burden at Christ's feet, and he willingly helps us with that so that it becomes manageable. Now, for me and myself, I struggle all the time because I still have these moments when I know I can cast my burden at Christ's feet. I know that I could get rid of this anxiety. I know I, I know exactly what I, I need to do, as it were. But yet that stubborn, I don't want to look at the serpent and be healed comes into play, where for some reason, I just want to experience my pain and just to feel bad about experiencing my pain. And I know how to get rid of it. And I'm angry that I have it. And I know how to get rid of it. And I don't really want to get rid of it. It's almost like becoming addicted to your pain because it validates something about yourself that you feel that you don't want to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And so I, I see that in these wicked men here. That's why I've spent so much time wanting to talk about these wicked men, because I really do see myself in their, in their reflection. I, I see myself in these guys way too much. Well, I think a lot of holding on to that pain or, or whatever is that projection of the false self. It's the Satan, the accuser, saying you deserve this. You deserve to feel this pain because of who you are. It's those moments that we listen to that. We're like, yeah, that's who I am, so I deserve to feel this way. I deserve to be experiencing what I'm experiencing now because I'm this terrible person or I'm, you know, whatever narrative is built up to you by yourself that Satan uses to push you in that direction. So that's actually a very deep, profound psychological discussion that I don't know if I'm fully qualified to have, but just from my own experience, I think that is consistent. But I talked with others that that is consistent with their experience of how that works as well. Yeah. Before we go to section 11, Ben, there was one thing over here about faith and prayer that I wanted to address that kind of stood out to me when I was reading this. And it's where Jesus is talking, and he talks about how the ancients who have lived on this land, it, that it was through their faith in the gospel that allowed the, in the latter days that the Lamanites would hear the gospel. It was th through their prayer and faith that allowed the covenant to be here on the land. And he says here that, and now behold, according to their faith and in their prayers, will I bring this part of my gospel to the knowledge of my people. Behold, I do not bring it to destroy that which they have received, but to build it up. Now, you'd mentioned the podcast about prayer that we did a contemplation. I'm going to reference that too. In that contemplation that I did with uh, Riley for uh, Latter-day Contemplation, it's part of here of the Latter-day Peace Studies Project, we talked about different forms of prayer. And one of the things that stood out to me recently in praying for those who are sick. So if someone is sick, someone, someone gets COVID or someone gets uh, an ailment or has cancer or is going into surgery or whatever, and you pray for them, right? We often take this view that God was unaware of what was going on until you prayed for it. <laughs> and so it's, it, it's like we <laughs> or prayed. Or that he didn't care. Or that know, he didn't care. Maybe he was care. aware, but he didn't care enough to do anything about it. Right, right. And so my prayers, once I realized that that was kind of implicitly the way I was praying, is that I'm like, God, please bless this person as if he wasn't doing so already. And the minute I realized how I was saying that, I shifted focus. And I started to pray in a way that was like, God, I know you're already there. I know you're already aware of it. I know, I know that you're already there present with that person and doing whatever it is that you're doing with them. 
But here's the deal. I love them. And I would like to include my intentionality for and in behalf of them in petitioning you so that I can be a part of that conversation and what you're doing in their life. And the minute I started to change that focus, that God was already doing what God does, I was then asking to come into the experience to be a part of what God is doing for that other person. With that thought, when I read this, I kind of had this thought, because I've read this before, uh, you know, when teaching seminary and, and uh, you know, last come follow me or just private studies. And I've always wondered, like, was it really just because these, you know, there were a few righteous people who were so righteous that all of a sudden God wasn't going to do anything about it until these people prayed. And God's like, well, I wasn't going to do anything about it. But now that you said, and you, you know, you said it in, in faith, <laughs> you know what? That sounds like a pretty doggone good idea. Let's go ahead and do it. Right. And I don't, I don't think that's the way it went down. I think in a lot of ways, God's already doing this. And he's already bringing about, he's proactive in his own children's lives. He's mapped this whole thing out. He knows what's going to happen. Nothing is going to surprise him. But what I pull from these verses, when it says that, yea, this was their faith that my gospel, which I gave unto them, that they might preach it to all their days, might come unto their brethren, the Lamanites, and also that had become the Lamanites because of their dissensions. Now, this is not all. Their faith and their prayers was all that this gospel could be, was that this gospel should be made known also, if it were possible, that other nations should possess this land. So not only are they praying for their kindred, but they're praying for any other nations that come to this land, that they'll be brought into a knowledge of God. It's written down as if it was their faith that was the causal mechanism. But what I see now is, is I see God who is already involved in doing this. This was already a thing that was happening, but that he's invoking and he's letting us know that there have been others standing in their true self who have petitioned him for in behalf of us, that we're not alone, that we are not standing here completely alone in our time, that there were people before us who looked with intentionality and prayed with intentionality, asking for them to be included into our well-being. And so that when we are then confronted with the problems of the world, that we then begin to look back on previous generations who have prayed for us, who have sought for us, who have looked for us, who have been intentional with God for and on behalf of us, that we can then begin to heal the family of God by turning to our fathers and letting their intentionality with God affect and impact our life. And so when I read this now, I see this as almost like that spirit of Elijah. It was their intentionality that came forward and has then been brought into this conversation and God has allowed that conversation to come in through and for kind of through them as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Everything you just said, you know, this really fits right with what we were talking about earlier with prayer, you know, that prayer is the process by which the will of the child or the son or the daughter is, is brought into the correspondence alignment with the will of the father. And so what it is, is it's this moment in which we step into, are invited into the creative process with Father. And we become in that moment, one with him in our will. And so how, what else can we do but pray for the welfare and well-being of others? Because that's who we are in that moment. Our will has become united. Often we may be praying in that way as if God doesn't want it as much as we do right? In that moment, we are praying to a false God. Because that's not who God is. He doesn't 
love that person less than us, right? And I kind of had the same type of moment when I realized like all these people that I'm praying for and I'm asking to bless, like God loves them way more than I do. (laughs) And so he wants something better for them than I can even imagine that I want for them. And so what is my job here? Is my job here to try to get God to do what I want for them? Or is it to sit with God and understand what he really wants for them and for me? And then to say, oh, that's what I want too. That's right. That's it. And to add myself to that, to put myself in correspondence with that, to jump into or step into, maybe better, step into that presence of God, step into that creative process with him. I see this, you know, we talked about this multiple times with the brother of Jared, where, you know, the Lord could have just done everything, but he wanted the brother of Jared to participate in that creative process with him. And so the Lord wants us to pray, to bring our will in line with his. He wants us to participate in the process of loving and serving his children and exalting them. He wants us to participate in that so that we understand what it means to be him. That's the whole purpose, right? And so his work is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. Well, what is that? It's to desire, not just desire, but to to act and to, to have the will that's the same as the Father. And so prayer is one of the processes by which that happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> I just want to sit with that for a moment. And just think about that. I don't want to I don't want to move on yet. Mm. It does change a little not a little. It it completely changes the paradigm of prayer. It's something that I've arrived at personally and even, you know, been able to analyze and and restate to myself almost analytically, right? But it's still something that I have to arrive at almost every time I pray. Like I might start praying and be like, okay, what am I doing? I have to kind of reflect back on, stop a second. What am I doing in this moment? Am I, am I really praying? Is this real prayer or is this something else? Some of the things that we do in the temple in terms of prayer and how it sort of elucidates that principle of united and and our wills being in alignment and and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, I know I don't even know how to follow that up. So <laughs> Let's go to section 11. Let's here. go to section 11. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it, we got uh you know with verse 6, you brought it up on a previous podcast and I I've, I've been thinking about it uh, before, but when it says keep my commandments and sing to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. And you you know you talked about the cause of Zion. Causation versus the effect of and those things which bring about Zion. And we've talked a little bit about becoming the pure in heart and really focusing on that beatitude type life where we are now the salt of the earth, where we're the light on the hill. You know, that's what that, that's what that phrase means. Not, not some Winthrop American mythical city on a hill, right? Mm. No, th- this is a beatitude living. And so when we keep the commandments and we seek to bring forth the a cause of Zion, it's the bringing forth of the true self. When that happens, we're not seeking for riches because, in you know, in my life, it was a bitter pill, a jagged pill. It was a jagged and a bitter pill to swallow. It was <laughs> jagged a jagged pill. It was a jagged, bitter, nasty pill. 
when I recognized that most of my life, what I thought I was living by faith, I was actually living by fear. Mm. Man, that was a rough time because I started to have to really evaluate how I saw my life and how I saw God and how I saw myself, how I saw my family and my relationship to my family and what I was for my family. And it's still a process I'm going through. It's not like it's, it's not like I'm over. It's like just when you think you've you've kind of got an idea, you realize you have to like empty the whole thing over again and start over again. But it's but I recognized that be, being the man, you know, our church narratives and and even American narratives about about the male provider, right? And in going out and and in kind of conquering the world for your family, as it were, there's a lot of fear that goes along along with that when the world is written in the narrative of the false self, when the world is written in these narratives of fear, that's all you know. Then all of a sudden putting away for a rainy day is not just like good advice, but it's actually rooted in this, this essence where I have to like put away to be able to have a contingency against the fear that I built up for myself against the unknown. But yet when we, it's like, how do you get away from that? And, and I've talked about some, a little bit about how when I thought about these scriptures that talk about not seeking for riches, but to build the kingdom of God, it's that I realized that you can't build the kingdom of God in fear. That the reason we're commanded to build the kingdom of God first is this ability to learn how to live by faith. Because then when we go out to get riches or we go out to conquer the world, as it were, it's all by faith, not by fear. And there's a breath of difference between the two. And as I, as I turned focus to build the kingdom of God, I started to realize how much of my life was still written in fear. And it still is. It's not like I've conquered any of this. I, I just <laughs> I just recognized how badly I sucked at it. But but in this, I it's now when I go out, you know, the Lord says, when you go out to seek for riches, once you learn faith, then you just you get riches to give it to the poor. Because if you live by fear, you don't give away your riches to the poor. They're not deserving of it. They're poor for a reason, right? They didn't live true and correct principles to be able to get their wealth. They, they just, might use it to do bad stuff. They might get it to have beer or to get drugs or to cope with life however they found to cope with it. And man, I've had a, I've argued with those narratives for years. Hmm. But seek not for riches, but for wisdom. And behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you, and then shall you be made rich. Behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. There's been a few experiences in my adult life, mostly in the last maybe four years, where I've had such transformative experiences with God that are worth more than all the money I've ever made in my life. I never really understood these verses until I actually experienced God. Then at that point, I got a glimpse of what these things start to mean. Because it all sounds great in theory. Oh yeah, we're going to die. Nothing you're going to take have these narratives in church all the time. You're going to die. You're not going to be able to take anything with you. And we all nod along. You're like, yeah, 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 I get that. It all mentally sounds right, right? But then Monday hits and then our work week hits. And then we're all trying to buy experiences for ourselves and our families. And then these words just seem to melt away. Either they're not applicable or we just don't think about them anymore. But it wasn't until I actually spent the time necessary to empty where these began to actually have real meaning for me. Yeah, I've I've been chewing on it for a while too. I don't I don't uh I don't have anything to report. <laughs> <laughs> 
hard but one. I'm chewing on it. <laughs> it. It is it is a hard one because it's it's not something that we can just wrap up in a bag and tie it up and be like, okay, that's done. You know, like it's something that stares at us every day and and we have to wrestle with it every day. So so that's a yeah, that's a that's a difficult one to to chew on. But I am. I'm chewing on it. I think verse 9 puts a lot of things in context where it says, say nothing but repentance into this generation. I think God knows this is a hard one. And so he's like, guys, you're just going to have to keep on repenting. Just <laughs> 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 you got to keep on seeing me differently. Just, just keep chipping away at it and you'll get there. Oh, that's interesting. I like uh, verse 12 here. This is a mini uh, Moroni chapter 7 about how to discern good from evil and light from darkness and the spirit of of Christ versus the spirit of Satan. And now verily, verily, I say unto thee, put your trust in that spirit, which leadeth to do good, yea, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously. And this is my spirit. Man, like, I think you could condense a lot of scripture down in that one verse. There's a lot of power there, just in describing how the Lord works. Put your trust in that spirit. Now that is a that is a fascinating thing for us to trust that the spirit that leads us to do good is the way, right? You were talking about outcome-based morality earlier that we have to like think it through, okay, if I do this, then this is going to happen and you know this is going to happen. Do I want that outcome? Okay, therefore I'm not going to do this. And so much of our life is built up in that, right? is figuring out what action to take so that we get a specific outcome. And here it says, interesting, put your trust in that spirit which leadeth to do good. And it's about our individual actions, not about a specific outcome, right? And so we put our trust in the spirit that leads us to do good, not in the spirit that guarantees us a specific outcome. Right to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously. This is my spirit, and we have to put our trust in that. It's not this like rational argument about cause and effect and how things are going to end up. Um, we have to put our trust in what we know to be good, uh, not because again because of some outcome, but because of the light of Christ. Yeah, you know, I like in verse twenty-one here. It says, "Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word." And then shall your tongue be loosed. Then you shall, de- if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. But now hold your peace. You know, going back to, uh, to section 10 at the very beginning, I love this part here where he says, do not run faster or labor more than you have strength and means, but be diligent to the end. You know, so often in our lives, we feel like God's in a hurry. That we have to be in a hurry because we hear all these stories in our church narratives about, especially like when Joseph appears to Brigham. There's a popular popular story that's usually told somewhere along church history this year. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to it. <laughs> when Brigham Young sees Joseph in a dream, but Joseph doesn't have time for him because he's too busy. Yeah. And, you know, this happens a couple different times. Obviously, it's rhetorical busy, right? <laughs> rhetorical busy. <laughs> Whatever it is. But we always have these narratives like, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. It's right now. It, it's, it's, it, we don't know when it's going to happen, but, but the, Jesus is coming soon or, and whatever it is. And we almost create this anxiety and 
I love these verses. Hey guys, don't run faster or labor more than you have strength or means. You know, we have these false self notions about where we should be in our spirituality, where we should be in our relationship to God, where we should be in our vocations, where we should be with our education, where we should be with our families or with our children's educations, where we should be with anything. And usually it's five or six steps above where we feel we are. There is a very real essence of living especially in our culture nowadays, where we always feel like we're two or three inches, if not five or six inches underwater. And we're always fighting just to get a breath of air. And, you know, COVID has definitely not helped. But I love here in these verses, do not run faster or labor more than you have strength and means. That the Lord simply asks us to take care of what we have today. That's it. I mean, that that Sermon on the Mount speech, you know, speech right mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And then when we go back here to to Hiram, the Lord saying, Hey, listen, he's like, keep my commandments, hold your peace, appeal to my spirit. Behold, this is your work to keep my commandments with all of your might, mind and strength. That's what you need to be focusing right now. Just, just focus on keeping my commandments right now. Don't seek to go out to declare my word, but just right now seek to just let it, let, let it sit with you. You know, he talks about the translation coming out of the book of Mormon. He's like, wait until the book of Mormon comes out. Let, let some of these truths roll over you. And then, hey, your tongue's going to be loosed. If you have a desire to go out to do this, yeah, your tongue will be loosed. You'll be able to do it. But don't have anxiety for it right now. And so I love how the Lord is putting on the brakes here. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we're commanded to not take thought for the morrow, for the morrow takes think care of the things of itself. The translation there is meant to don't take anxiety for tomorrow. Don't let it rob you of your peace. Especially now with things going on in the country, still people are talking, you know, we have calls from the top down about unification and peace. And, and on one side of the debate, people are like, yeah, let's have unity and peace. Now our guy's in office. And on the other side of the debate, you have people are saying, well, I can't have unity and peace with you because of all of your policies and what you're going to do to me. Going back to the accuser, the accuser always has a justification for accusing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why politics will always be the Satan archetype. There's nothing that we will ever find of God in that process. When we come back down here to the what God is doing, we begin to see how much patience he has with us, how much patience he has for us. God's not in a hurry. But the thing is, is there is a a world of difference between not being in a hurry and being apathetic. They're not the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a lot of the time we think we only have two gears. We only have apathy or we have high levels of anxiety. And, and there's a whole world of, uh, there's a whole spectrum in between the two <laughs> of living. You know, the, the section here ends off, there's, there's a lot of verses that are really great in here. The last little thing that stood out to me is just this last verse, 30. Uh, but verily, verily, I say unto you, that as many as receive me, to them will I give power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on my name. Amen. I love the use of the word power in here because the sons of God, this is, yes, this is a language from John, um, but this is also language from the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. And so I love that he uses the word power here along with that. That being a peacemaker, when we come to him and he gives us 
that power, the power is what? It's the power to be a peacemaker and then we'll be called the sons of God. And and I just love the combination or the use of that word in this context. I love that. Well, I don't have anything else to say. Uh, next week, we are going to finally be talking about John the Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of a joke. I don't I don't know if we were recording or not, but uh, but Ben and I sat down to, to record uh, one of the Joseph Smith histories. I think it was the second Joseph Smith history. And I was getting all excited because we were going to be studying jo- or John the Baptist. You were talking for a long time about John the Baptist <laughs> and he did this and this and we're going to talk about this. And you went on for, I don't know, all, more than five minutes. And, and I said... <laughs> Well, that's awesome, Shiloh. You know we're not talking about him for like a month. <laughs> <laughs> I was so disappointed that day. <laughs> like what? <laughs> oh man, we're gonna. I'm, I'm gonna definitely bring in some Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery's explanation and his description about John the Baptist at the end of the DNC. Ah, oh, it's just one of my. Favorites. Yeah, I'm so glad they included that. I don't know if I, you know, would have ever searched it out in any other literature otherwise. Yes. So excited. I'm so, so I finally get John the Baptist next week. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again so much to Kyle and Catherine for your editing and the time you take for us. And, and uh, we will see you guys back next week. Remember, God loves you. Until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.